As a teacher, you quickly learn that there are two kinds of questions you are asked, or at least two kinds. There are questions that are asked because the person asking the question has a genuine desire to know the answer. Those are the kinds of questions that teachers enjoy. It is encouraging to work with people who are eager to learn and are hungry to understand. However, there are other kinds of questions that people sometimes ask. We could call them disingenuous questions. These are questions that are asked to discredit you or trap you or bait you into an argument or maybe just merely a discussion. Because not all these kinds of questions are asked with evil motives. Sometimes the questioner simply may be trying to draw you into a friendly debate to see if your viewpoints really hold water. Other times, the questioner asks you these kinds of questions with evil motives to bring about some kind of harm to your reputation. As we have seen over the last several messages of this series in Mark's Gospel, Jesus was asked these kinds of questions many, many times. In fact, as he neared the end of his ministry, these kinds of questions were thrown at him repeatedly until he finally decided that it was time to end all the questions. He ended the questions by asking a question of his own. If you are not already there, turn with me to Mark chapter 12 and please follow along as I read three brief but very powerful verses out of Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. If you have been with us in recent weeks, then you know that this event took place just a few days before Jesus was crucified. Chapter 11 of this gospel launches us into the final week of Jesus' life. Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a young donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Multitudes gathered around him, spreading palm branches on the road, shouting a verse out of Psalm 118, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! That event is commonly called the triumphal entry. Jesus was presenting himself as the Messiah of Israel in fulfillment of prophecy. This infuriated most of the leaders of Israel. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people. They were further enraged when the next day Jesus went into the temple and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. If that wasn't enough, 
Jesus allowed the young boys who were at the temple, probably for their bar mitzvah, to call him the son of David. And that infuriated the religious leaders. Mark doesn't tell us about that. Matthew does in Matthew 21. As a result of all this building anger, all of these groups of leaders decided that something had to be done about Jesus. He was upsetting the apple cart. He was messing with their status quo. So they began to question him. In chapter 11, verse 27, Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? This wasn't an honest question. If this were an honest question, Jesus could have simply answered, God, my Father gave me this authority. But this was a question with an evil motive, not really wanting an answer. They were looking for something to use against Jesus to discredit him with the people and or to get him in trouble with the Romans. Look at chapter 12, verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. The Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups that didn't mix. And this wasn't a genuine question either, and Jesus knew it. They said, this, they gave their question, and then in verse 15, we read, Shall we pay or shall we not pay? That was their question. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. Well, you know that story. We covered it in detail. This scheme didn't work. So the Sadducees tried their hand at it. Down in verse 18, Then some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him a question, testing him also. Well, that didn't work either. So the Pharisees stepped forward. Verse 28, then one of the scribes came, and the scribes were a subset of the Pharisees. One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And as you know, Jesus was able to answer this question brilliantly without implicating himself in any way, but enough was enough. All these groups had fired their questions at Jesus. The Sadducees, Herodians, Pharisees, scribes, elders of the people, they were trying to impugn him in some way. So it was time that he put an end to all their questions by posing a question to them. That brings us to our text beginning in verse 35. Now just before we jump into that verse, I want to emphasize something that I just said or stated, but it may not have really stood out to you. Back in chapter 11, verse 9, the multitudes cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next verse says, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. That phrase clearly affirmed Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David. The people knew and understood that the Messiah would come from the line of David and that is why they often referred to him as the son of David. And that is why they said on that occasion, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. They knew the Messiah would be a king from David's line. They knew he would be a great man. 
What they didn't know was that he would be more than a man. They had no idea that the Messiah would be divine. That suggestion was blasphemous to them. After all, they had been taught, and rightly so, there is only one God. They didn't understand that this one God exists in three persons, so they assumed one God, one person. So to talk about anyone else being God was blasphemous to them. As much as they revered the coming Messiah, they could not conceive of him being divine. And that is the exact issue that Jesus addresses in this brief text here in Mark 12. Notice how he goes about it. Verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? They have been asking him questions, so now it's his turn to ask them a question. One of their own had just asked Jesus a question to test him. That's the focus of verses 28 through 34. That's why they were around him. At, the very, at this very moment. That's why they were gathered together. Before they could scatter, Jesus asked them a question. He said, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, as a little parenthesis here, it's important to understand that these Pharisees did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They saw him as a rabbi or as a teacher, but not as the Messiah. In the previous story, which we covered last week, according to Matthew's account, the scribe, when he approached Jesus, approached him as teacher. He addressed him as teacher. He did not address Jesus as Messiah or Son of David or Lord or Master because the Pharisees did not see him that way. They thought he was merely a teacher or a rabbi, and they considered him a self-appointed one at that. Therefore, when Jesus pose this question here in verse 35, you need to understand that they weren't automatically thinking that he was referring to himself. They probably assumed he was just asking them a theological question. He was was just maybe entering into dialogue with them. Hey, how, how come the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? How is it that they say that? Well, frankly, they wouldn't have had any difficulty answering that question. Because they knew the many passages in Hebrew Scripture that say that the Messiah will be the son of David. He will come from the line of David. For example, 2 Samuel 7 records God's promise to David that his kingdom would continue down through the centuries and that someone from his line would eventually be king over a kingdom that would be established forever. That is clearly a reference to the Messiah. Psalm 132.11 says the same thing. It says, The Lord has sworn in truth to David he will not turn from it. In other words, God will never change his mind. He'll never back off from this promise. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 indicates the same thing. It says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, David's father, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, repeat the same kind of thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, 
that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute justice and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. That's obviously not referring to his first coming. All of that wasn't true in the first coming. It's referring to his second coming when he comes back to establish his kingdom. And then the verse concludes, Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. That's a reference to the Messiah, what he will do, and the fact that he will come from David's line. So, the scribes and Pharisees knew all these passages, and there are many others. So they could have easily given justification for the reason why they taught that the Messiah is the son of David. That assertion was correct. But it was only part of the picture. Jesus, the Messiah, is the son of David. But he is more than that. He is more than just a man. That's what Jesus is driving at here in this text. Verse 36, Jesus says, For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Oh, what a powerful point this is. The the Pharisees were theologically conservative. Remember, different than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. The, The Pharisees were the theological conservatives. They believed in the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, which they should have. So here Jesus directs them to Scripture. He quotes from Psalm 110, which was the Psalm of David, and he reminds them that David wrote that Psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He reminds them that David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, Jesus was reminding them that when David referred to the Messiah as Lord, that wasn't just David's assessment of the Messiah. David wrote those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Those words were the product of supernatural revelation, supernatural guidance. Therefore, this was David's assessment of the Messiah. And here's a key point, the Holy Spirit's assessment of the Messiah. As I mentioned, this is a quotation of Psalm 110, verse 1. Let's turn back to that psalm to see the fullness of the context. Go back to Psalm 110. This psalm is not only quoted in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, it is also quoted in Acts 2, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 7. In fact, you might find this interesting. It's fascinating to me. This is the most frequently quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. The most frequently quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. It is clearly a messianic psalm looking forward to Messiah Jesus. Notice Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. 
in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. This is the psalm to which Jesus refers in Mark chapter 12. Specifically, he quotes the first verse of this psalm. David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned verse 1. Look at what it says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Notice that the first time the word Lord is used here in this verse, it is composed of all capital letters. That's a very important feature to notice when you are reading the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture. Now, this gets a little bit technical, but stay with me. Really focus here for a second. If you tuned out, tune back in and really think here for a second. Whenever you are reading in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture, and you see the word Lord in all capital letters, the translators and the printers are letting you know that this is the personal divine name Yahweh. The name Yahweh can be spelled out as capital Y, small a-h-w-e-h, or it can be written in all capital letters Y-H-W-E-H. H. Because it appears in Hebrew Scripture as capital Y-H-W-H, that is brought over into English as Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters. So again, whenever you're reading in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all capital letters, the translators and the printers are letting you know that this is the personal divine name, Yahweh. So that's the first usage of the word Lord here in verse 1. The Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitals. But notice that the second usage of the word here in verse 1 is spelled uh, with a capital L and small O-R-D. The Lord said to my Lord, capital L, small O-R-D. That is because this is the Hebrew word Adon, which means Lord or Master. So, again, whenever you are reading in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament, and you see the word Lord with a capital L at the beginning and small O-R-D, you know that it is not the personal divine name, Yahweh. It is the word Adon, or another Hebrew word, that means Lord or master, or sovereign one. So those are the two words that are used in this verse written by David. And what does he say? He says, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's quite a statement. Yahweh said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. First of all, this is saying that there were two lords in this interchange. Yahweh 
and another Lord that David claimed as his Lord. Yahweh said to my Lord. That, that means, secondly, it tells us that the second Lord is the one of whom David says, He is my Lord. Now, understand, David was not implying that Yahweh wasn't his Lord because there are many places where he affirms that Yahweh was his personal Lord. For example, just a few verses earlier, up in verse 26 of the previous psalm, David says this, Help me, O Lord my God. Notice that the word Lord there in verse 26 of Psalm 109, notice that it is in all capital letters, which tells us that this is the personal divine name Yahweh. There in that verse, David refers to Yahweh as his personal God. So David embraced Yahweh as his Lord and God, but here in verse 1 of Psalm 110, David refers to another Lord as my Lord. Since David was king of Israel, who else but Yahweh could have been his Lord? Whoever it was, that person also had to be divine like Yahweh. So that's what this verse is saying. That's what it is implying. That's what it is asserting. The Hebrew word, my Lord, is used throughout Hebrew Scripture to refer to God. So David... Now, here's the punchline that Jesus was getting at. David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, referred to the Messiah as divine. Did David understand all that he was saying when he wrote this verse? We don't know. We do know that there were times when the writers of Scripture, because they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote things that they didn't completely understand. Peter tells us that in one of his letters that the prophets would search their own writings, trying to put it all together and, and, and make sense of all of it. That's probably what was going on here. David certainly didn't understand the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's doubtful that he, that he even understood the deity of the Messiah. We can't say for sure. But the Holy Spirit guided him to write these words in verse 1 of Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. This is the verse Jesus quotes in our text in Mark 12. Now let's go back there to see what he does with it. Go back to Mark chapter 12. After Jesus quoted that verse from Psalm 110, he asked a question of his own. Notice verse 37. Therefore, this is Jesus talking now, after quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How then, how is he then his son? You see what Jesus is doing here? It's important for us to understand what Jesus was saying and doing and what he was not saying. He was not, please hear this, he was not denying the fact that the Messiah is the son of David. As I mentioned earlier, there are plenty of passages in Hebrew Scripture that affirm that the Messiah would come from the line of David. That fact is abundantly clear. No questions about it. So it was appropriate. It is appropriate to say that the Messiah is the son of David. But what Jesus is getting at here is that a full or complete picture of the Messiah 
cannot be restricted to a view of him as only human. The Messiah was human, but he was not merely human. He was and is also divine. In verse 1 of Psalm 110, David refers to another Lord, the Messiah, as my Lord. Since David was king of Israel, who else but God could have been his Lord? There was no one higher than David. No one, he, he, he would not refer to anyone as my Lord unless that person was divine. So whoever David is re- referencing in Psalm 110 verse 1, that person also had to be divine like Yahweh. That's the point that Jesus was making here. And it was an airtight argument he presented. Jesus was the son of David, human, the son of God, divine. As Revelation twenty two sixteen says, he is both the root and offspring of David. You know, that's a verse we quote a lot of times, especially around Christmas. Jesus is the root. and Have you ever stopped to think about it? How can Jesus be the root of David and the offspring of David? How can he be both? Well, he's the root of David because he's divine. He's the offspring of David in his humanity. He is both the root and offspring of David. You know, the cults will often say, and you know this if if you've had conversations with people who are involved in the cults, cults will often say, Jesus never claimed to be God because they'll say, you can't show me one verse where Jesus says, I am God. But listen, Jesus made that claim in so many unmistakable ways. This passage is a case in point. Jesus is clearly, undoubtedly claiming deity in this passage, and he does so by backing it up from Hebrew Scripture. According to Matthew's account, this silenced all the religious leaders of Israel who were trying to trap Jesus. They knew they had met their match. Jesus silenced them with his brilliant understanding of God's Word. Mark tells us, you notice the last phrase here in verse 37, that the common people heard Jesus gladly. They were amazed at his teaching. They were in awe of how he could handle Scripture. And Matthew tells us the religious leaders at this point stopped trying to trap Jesus. The antagonizing, the antagonistic questioning ceased. However, however, that doesn't mean that their hatred subsided. In fact, this conversation just added to it. They would allude to this very conversation in just a couple days when they were trying to find some kind of justification to kill Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Skip over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. Jesus was arrested in verse 54 of Luke 22. And he was brought to Caiaphas, the high priest, in the middle of the night for a trial, which was a mock trial. But the false accusers couldn't get anything to stick. So they brought Jesus to the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 66. As soon as it was day, we're talking really early in the morning here, it's like 6 a.m., As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him 
into their counsel, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Now, notice where their questioning begins. They want to know if this man before them, Jesus of Nazareth, claims to be the Messiah. But Jesus knows that even if he told them, even if he answered in the affirmative, they wouldn't believe him because he had already been asked the question in the earlier nighttime trial, and he told them that he was the Messiah. He claimed to be the son of David, which was the way of saying the Messiah. They refused to accept that fact, But that's not what infuriated them the most. What infuriated them the most was when he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be divine. Look at verse 69. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, what further need, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. That settled it in their minds. This was blasphemous to them. Jesus not only claimed to be the son of David, he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the Messiah, and he claimed to be God in human flesh. When he made this claim in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 25, 65, and 66 says this, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. That settled it in their mind. That was the assertion that sealed his fate. When Jesus claimed to be divine, the religious leaders concluded that he had spoken blasphemy and was worthy of death. Now, stay with me here. Jesus knew this would be the case. He knew what was coming. You know, maybe as we were going through the text in Mark, you think, well, why does, is Jesus just bringing this up to, to basically shut them up, to make them stop, or was there more to it? Oh, there was more to it. He knew what they would try to use to justify his unjust murder. That's one of the reasons why he had the conversation with them that he had in Mark 12. That's why he brought it up. Jesus, let me say it plainly, Jesus was being preemptive. He put them them in a position of not having a leg to stand on. He knew they would condemn him for blasphemy, claiming that as Messiah he was God, so in advance he showed them from the Scripture that the Messiah would be God. He was, in a sense, taking the sword out of their hands, knowing that's what they were going to use to try to justify his unjust murder. Now, it didn't keep them from using it, because you, he did, they did use that, but what it did do was to force them to use it in the face of, of the very Scripture they claim to believe. They claim to believe Scripture. So Jesus showed them from Scripture that the Messiah would not only be the son of David, 
he would be the divine Son of God. He silenced his accusers for the time being. But they would step forward in just a couple days to condemn him, using that as the basis, despite the fact that he had clearly demonstrated from Scripture that it was not out of line for the Messiah to claim to be divine. Beloved, this illustrates a very important point for us to understand. Please hear this. Many times, many times it is not a lack of information that keeps people from believing in Jesus and submitting their lives to him. We tend to think that way. We tend to think that if if people just had enough information, they would believe in Jesus and follow him. And sometimes people will give the impression that a lack of information is what, is what is holding them back. That simply isn't true in many cases. What holds people back from believing in Jesus and following Jesus is that they want to do what they want to do instead of what Jesus wants them to do. Now, please don't misunderstand me. You know that I am all for giving people sufficient information. I am all for answering people's questions. I am all for helping people overcome obstacles in their thinking or barriers or things that they don't know how to figure out and that just you know, are are proving to be a stumbling block for them. I'm all for that. But I also know that if a person's heart isn't receptive to the truth, and if a person's mind isn't open to the truth, you can give that person all the truth in the world, and they still will find an excuse to reject Jesus. This story illustrates that point graphically. These people had immense exposure to the truth. And Jesus even proved to them from their scripture that his claims were appropriate. His claims were not out of line. His his claims weren't uh, something that, that would be impossible to substantiate. Yet they rejected him with such hatred that they had him murdered. So let me say this very clearly. Salvation is not merely an intellectual issue. It's not merely an issue of knowledge, having all the right information, being able to check off, say all the right things. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus took our sins. Salvation is not merely an issue of knowledge. It's also a heart issue. Or to say it another way, it's also an issue of the will. People can have all the information in the world, all the facts, all the data, but still have a heart that isn't receptive to the truth, still have a mind that isn't open to the truth. So what about you? You know about Jesus, obviously. I mean, if you, if you came here, if this is the first time you've ever darkened the door of a church, then you've already picked up some information about Jesus here today. So you know about Jesus, but... Most of you, this is not your first time. You've heard about Jesus. You have the information. But have you opened your heart to him? You say, I don't like that wording, you know, open your heart. Okay, then have you surrendered your life to him? However you want to word it. Have you 
Have you gone beyond just intellectual assent? If not, all the information in the world isn't going to make any difference. In fact, it will simply make you more accountable, more responsible come judgment day. So if you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to do so now as we bow together in closing prayer. Please bow your head with me. As you bow your head in closing this morning, thinking about what we have seen in God's Word this morning, I would encourage you just to think through several thoughts that come out of our text. One, of course, is, which stands out front and center, just the, the brilliance of our Lord, of, of how He handled every situation. His knowledge of the Word, His ability to use the Word accurately, to be able to use the word specifically, clearly, that screams at us from the text. But in addition, the way Jesus preemptively took the sword out of the hands of those who would try to say he was out of line for claiming to be divine. He proved from their own scripture. And then to see these people who who were the theological conservatives of the day, still hate him so much. In spite of their knowledge, in spite of the information, they hated him so much that they were willing to use the very thing he had already proven as, as, as okay, proving as valid, but to, to use that very thing as a basis to justify his murder. Let that be a reminder to us that just having, being theologically conservative, having the right information, acknowledging certain facts, assenting to the truth does not make you right with God. Because the people in this story had all of those things going for them. So again, I have to ask you, where do you really stand with Jesus Christ? Not merely believing all the right facts, where do you really stand with Jesus Christ? You know about him. You've heard about him. You have the information. But have you embraced him? Is he really your Lord? As to borrow David's words, the Lord said to my Lord. Can you call Jesus your Lord? Is he really personally your Savior? That's the most important question, issue, you and I will ever face in this life and eternity. Father, as we close our time in your word this morning, we, we are so privileged just to be able to, to take this time and reflect upon the Lord Jesus, to meditate on him, to observe him, to see how he handled situations in life, to see how he responded to his enemies, how he patiently answered their questions time after time after time until it came time where he knew it was enough. It was enough. No more questions. So he asked a question of his own to silence them, but also to preemptively show that just in a couple days when they would condemn him on the basis of 
his claim of deity, how, how baseless their accusation was. Father, as we have gazed upon the Lord Jesus this morning, as we have observed him, we, we love to look at him. We love to learn from him. We, we love to observe his example. And we know from your word that the goal of our Christian lives is to be like Christ. Certainly to be like him in character, to have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all of those things, but also to be like him in our commitment to the word, our, our belief in and our firm conviction that your word settles all issues, that what you say in your word answers all objections. So may we have the same kind of commitment to your word that Jesus had, the same kind of devotion to it, and then also be able to use it the way he used it. Not only with Satan when he was tempted, quoting scripture, but used it in discussions and used it in arguments, used it in these interactions. May we be challenged in our own lives to have that same kind of devotion to your word. And then, Father, in closing, we want to ask you, we want to appeal to you that you would do whatever is necessary, whatever it takes, to break through to any person who is gathered here today who doesn't have a genuine relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. We've seen again, as we've seen so many times in Scripture, that just knowing the truth isn't enough. Just believing the truth intellectually isn't enough. And yet, Father, when we see that, looking back, it, it just fills us with a burden for, for people around us who may be in the same category, who are just relying on or trusting in the fact that they will intellectually assent to the truth of the gospel. They will say they believe Jesus died on the cross, that he was the Son of God, he rose from the dead, he bore our sins. They will say all of that. But the burden of our hearts is, do they really know him? Do they really know him? Is there a relationship there? Or will they someday hear those fearful words from Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. Father, if there is anyone here among us in that category, anyone here this morning in that category, Father, may you break through by your Holy Spirit Use the truth of your word. Use a conversation with someone else. Use circumstances in, in that person's life. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Father, may you get through and reach that person so that he or she would truly come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In whose precious and matchless name we pray. Amen.